0: Today. Yeah. Drop, hey, welcome to the Matt Watch That Podcast. I'm your host, Matt soroski filmmaker, film fan. Each episode I'm going to review a movie or TV pilot that I probably should have seen but never got around to. It could be a recent favorite, critic's choice, or cult classic. Everyone can join in on the fun. Follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Matt Sarosky. You can subscribe to my YouTube page where I'll post videos and clips from the show. If you have any opinions on what I've reviewed or suggestions as to what movie or TV pilot I should see next, use the hashtag MattWatchThat on social. Before we start, I wanted to talk about politics. Hold on, hold on, hold on. I can literally hear you turning off the podcast. I'm not going down that rabbit hole. Well, not fully. In my lifetime, I haven't experienced this much division. For reference, I didn't live through the 60s and 70s where there was plenty of turmoil and civil unrest. As a nation, we used to be able to laugh at politicians together. On Saturday Night Live, they took potshots at Richard Nixon, Bill Clinton, Ross Perot, Dan Quayle, Al Gore, and many, many others. George H.W. Bush invited Dana Carvey, who did an impression of him on the show, to the White House Christmas party and said, The fact that we can laugh at each other is a very fundamental thing. When we spoke of us versus them, it was the citizens against the politicians. Even though we voted for them in office, we knew in the back of our minds that they're scumbags and self-serving. But now it's political party versus political party. We'll defend hypocrisy when it's our party doing it. If someone points that out, we'll use whataboutisms to avoid facing the cold hard truth. When politicians go into office as part of the middle class and come out as millionaires, there is something shady going on. That should tick all of us off equally. Are these the people you really want to be defending? Why are we allowing them to distract and divide us? I think it comes down to the news networks. I'm not talking about the mainstream media or the fake news or whatever. People who watch any type of news channel must understand that even if they call themselves news, they are an entertainment channel. If you've watched a program where a host gives cute nicknames to politicians like Beijing Biden or Don the Khan, can you not see that's partisan? Is that someone you really want to fact quote the next time you're having a political debate? they are a business. If the newscasters and hosts felt any obligation to speak truth to power, expose lies and corruption, they would do it for free. In fact, when cable television first started, it was supposed to be commercial free, because why would anyone pay for channels when household had an antenna which brought in ABC, NBC, and CBS for free? The incentive to purchase these additional channels was to get commercial free programming. The channels would make money through cable subscribers which they would receive a percentage of. For example, ESPN would get $0.80 per subscriber, TNT would get $0.65, and the lower tier channels would maybe get 5 or $0.10. But at some point, the cable executives got greedy. They thought, we can double dip here. Not only can we get money per subscriber, but we can make additional revenue by adding advertising. So little by little, commercials were being phased in to the point where now they're not better than the -the over-the-airwaves channel that people grew up with. This is what drives the cable television industry. Each network has an ad sales team who works with the research department to figure out the base rating for the channel across different time periods. Morning, afternoon, fringe, prime, and late night. Based on this information, a rate card is created which basically dictates how much a one 30-second spot is worth on the channel in those time periods. A spot in Prime costs more than one in Afternoons. Then, the ad sales team goes out and tries to convince the auto dealers, movie studios, and pharmaceutical companies to advertise on the network. They will say, we can guarantee you a 1.5 rating in Prime if you pay $1,000 for a 30-second spot. If the advertiser agrees and the ratings are over 1.5 million, everyone is happy. The advertisers are happy because the network overdelivered and they received additional exposure. The network is happy because if the ratings increase, the next time those advertisers want to buy a spot in Prime, it might cost $1,250. Now, if the ad sales team promised a 1.5 rating and the channel gets a 0.9, the network has to give the advertiser a make-good, which is basically a free spot to make up for the rating shortfall, because the advertiser paid for a 1.5 rating and the network didn't deliver. Then it becomes a domino effect, because if you're airing a free spot to make up for the shortfall, that's one less spot that can be sold to a paying advertiser. So why am I babbling on about this, outside of showing you how smart I am about the cable television industry? It's because there are only two things that matter to a cable network. They're both R-words, so it's easy to remember. Ratings and revenue. Have you ever watched a news show where the host is up against a hard break? The guest is answering a question and going on and on and on, and you can see it in the host's face that someone just said in their ear, we gotta go to break, we gotta go to break and then their eyes widen a little because they see the guest isn't finished talking. Then the host starts to interrupt the guest with, Okay, yeah, alright. It's like you're trying to get off the telephone with someone and they're not getting the hint. The guest could be on the verge of telling us the true meaning of life, and the host will interrupt because they gotta get to those commercials. Don't kid yourself when you watch CNN, Fox News, MSNBC, Newsmax, all they are about is increasing the viewership, which boosts the ratings, which boosts the revenues. When you're a quote-unquote news network, it becomes a dangerous motivator. If the channel ratings are increasing because you're telling outrageous stories and fringe theories under the guise of news, they're going to continue down that path as long as it keeps bringing in the revenue. This is the vicious cycle. The bottom line is the bottom line. So the next time you're going to quote your favorite news host, maybe take a step back and think about what their true motivation is. Happy President's Day. Now for the main attraction. Each review will end with a ranking out of five stars. One star is skip it. Two stars, watch at your own risk. Three stars is standard fare. Four stars is worth checking out. And five stars is must see. Now, if I give a title five stars, it doesn't mean I'm comparing it to Casablanca, Jaws, or Seinfeld. I rank titles based on other movies or TV series in that genre and at that time period. So let's jump into it. I'll keep the spoilers to a minimum, tangents to a maximum. These are my ruminations and observations of the show. The West Wing, from 1999, about the personal lives of the staff and public perception of the administration for President Bartlett. The series was created by Aaron Sorkin, who penned the screenplays for A Few Good Men, Malice, The American President, Charlie Wilson's War, The Social Network, Moneyball, and Molly's Game. A prolific writer. He probably has the best percentage of good content versus bad content, and any writer would be happy to have his bad content. The first two episodes were directed by Tommy Schlamme. He's worked closely with Aaron Sorkin on Sports Night and Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip. He also directed the movie So I Married an Axe Murderer with Mike Myers, and episodes of Mad About You, ER, The Wonder Years, Chicago Hope, and The Americans. The pilot begins with an emergency of the highest magnitude. The president got into a bicycle accident riding into a tree. You'd think the Russians were invading the way that his staff was reacting, but you get a glimpse into their personal lives as they find out this information and have to quickly get to the West Wing. Press Secretary CJ Craig, portrayed by Allison Janney, is working out when she receives the news. Deputy Communications Director Sam Seaborn, played by Rob Lowe, was involved in a one-night stand with a woman who turns out to be a prostitute. Josh Lyman, portrayed by Bradley Whitford, is in hot water for making a snarky comment toward an activist Christian conservative on a talk show. Leo McGarry plays Chief of Staff John Spencer. He receives updates on the president's condition and assembles everyone to devise a strategy on the influx of Cuban refugees seeking asylum. Throughout the beginning of the episode, they all use the acronym POTUS, and it makes me wonder if they mainstream that term. I'd never heard it before in conversation until the last 10 to 15 years. I know the Twitter handle is at POTUS, but no one was calling Ronald Reagan POTUS, at least not publicly. My least favorite part of the pilot was the introduction of the character Mandy. She's driving recklessly while a song plays, which is a sound-alike of No Doubt. She's a political consultant, but just rubs me the wrong way. It feels like she's supposed to be tough as nails, but comes off as childish and immature. I don't know. I read on IMDb that her character is written off in season 2, so that's something to look forward to. As with any show that uses politics as a backdrop for the storylines, there are jokes at the expense of both parties, though the right certainly takes a few more shots. If we weren't in such hyper-partisan times, it wouldn't seem like such a big deal. I think every actor wants their character to have a strong introductory scene. During a meeting with a Christian conservative group to calm the waters, President Bartlett makes his first appearance and pulls off a very memorable monologue. The through line of the pilot episode is the public perception of the administration. Josh Lyman is accomplished at his job, but from a PR standpoint, firing him is the safe choice. It's a good look. Sam Seaborn has strong feelings for the woman he spent the night with, but because of her profession and his job position, that holds him back from pursuing a relationship further. C.J. Craig must figure out how to spin the story of President Bartlett's big adventure and prevent them from being a laughingstock. If political figures spent as much time and energy on policy as they do on their image, maybe things would actually be achieved in Washington. I was iffy about continuing the series, but it's so highly regarded and critically acclaimed that I decided to watch episode 2, I'm glad I did because it was much stronger. President Bartlett is an interesting character. I like his demeanor. I'm glad that he appeared throughout the episode as opposed to right at the end, as Martin Sheen has such a great presence. Katherine Justin portrays Dolores Langdingham, the executive secretary of the president. She was introduced in the pilot episode, but is more fully formed in episode two. The viewer immediately understands her character and her relationship with the president. The rest of the cast seem more comfortable in their roles. The dialogue was crisp, and the acting is first class. The show continues the theme of the importance of image. The staff want to talk about the president's sense of humor and how it potentially costs him votes. He responds, we did not lose Texas because of the hat joke. The West Wing uses Washington, D.C. as a backdrop, but the stories focus on the lives of the staffers as much as the functionality of an administration. It's no different than other workplace dramas, you know, except for the fact that these people have the fate of the free world in their hands. I like that the show isn't necessarily about politics. That doesn't interest me. Despite some of my rants, I'm not a political person. There is so much corruption and gridlock that I've become apathetic. I'd rather focus on ways that I can make a direct impact on people. Yes, there's a lot of political jargon and mumbo-jumbo between bits of witty dialogue. There's a funny scene where Sam Seaborn is a tour guide to a group of visiting fourth graders, and he knows absolutely nothing about the history of the White House. Some of the one-liners feel dated, like a Peanuts joke on an airplane. And nothing ages a series like outdated technology such as a pager. The series had high production values, and with a budget of about $2 million per episode, that should be expected. Director Tommy Shlami wasn't the originator of the walk-and-talk technique, but he certainly mastered those fluid camera sequences. It keeps those long scenes of dialogue interesting, though if I had to memorize all those lines, my takes alone would boost the budget to $3 million per episode. As with many pilot episodes, there was no title sequence, only a title card. This would be instated in the second episode, Post Hoc Ergo Propter hawk along with the iconic theme by WG Snuffy Walden. I saw an interview where he said the theme song was written for a different project, but executive producer Tommy Shlamy heard the piece and said, That's our song. Over his illustrious career, the Snuffster has created many memorable compositions, included in Roseanne, Huff. 30-something, The Wonder Years, My So-Called Life, Ellen, Felicity, Once and Again, and Friday Night Lights. During the 70s, he opened for such acts as Donna Summer, Stevie Wonder, and Chaka Khan. ch ch chucka Khan. He was also an in-demand studio musician. And in case anyone was wondering, his name is William Garrett Walden. I couldn't find any information on his nickname Snuffy. Maybe he was friends with Big Bird. The West Wing ran on NBC from 1999 to 2006, with 155 episodes total. The series won 26 Emmy Awards, 3 Golden Globes, and 2 Peabody's, and was nominated for over 250 industry accolades. Ultimately, the episodes come down to Lady of the Night, Walk and Talk, Radio Shack, Walk and Talk, Oh Mandy, Walk and Talk, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, Walk and Talk, Quid Pro Quo, and Walk and Talk. I give the pilot episode 3 out of 5 stars, and episode 2, 4 out of 5 stars. I might be a little harsh with the ranking of the first episode, but that's only because I like the second episode so much more. If you've seen The West Wing and have opinions on the series, let me know what you think using the hashtag MattWatchThat. Moving right along. Each episode, I'm going to post clips that I think people should watch. It could be movie trailers, music videos, interviews, or something completely random. Search for my YouTube page and there will be a playlist called Matt Watch That Playback. At the Grammy Awards in 1994, Frank Sinatra was being presented with the Legend Award. During his speech, the chairman of the board was clearly emotional and honored. He was taking his time, pausing between sentences and gathering his thoughts. For someone with such a long and illustrious career, it was nice hearing him reflect. But I guess his speech was going a little too long for CBS, who cut to a commercial break while he was speaking. Host Gary Shandling made the comment that the show should have let Frank finish uninterrupted. The amount of disrespect was too much for Billy Joel to take. During his performance of The River of Dreams, which includes three pauses that get progressively longer throughout the song, he decided to let that third pause linger. He looked at his watch and said, valuable advertising time going by, dollars, 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 before finishing his performance. Billy Joel knows what makes those networks tick. I've included the video of this performance on the Matt Watch That playback playlist on YouTube, which you could probably see after a 30 second ad. Now it's time for the recommendation. Yes, that's the word recommendation with Matt in the middle. I'm going to end each podcast with my own recommendation of a movie or TV series. Today I'm talking about Tough Crowd with Colin Quinn. The show ran Monday through Thursday on Comedy Central from 2002 to 2004. It featured a panel of stand-up comedians commenting on social issues and the latest news stories. What was unique about the show was that none of them were experts on the subjects, so it felt like you were listening to a group of friends talking at a local bar. And it always degenerates into making fun of each other, and nothing is funnier than comedians ragging on comedians. They always try to outdo one another until someone phenomenally bombs, and it's usually Rich Voss. One episode made headlines because Greg Giraldo and Dennis Leary got a little too personal with each other, and there was thought it could lead to a physical altercation. But Colin Quinn put his leg up between them and everything tempered down. I didn't realize how much power Colin Quinn's leg has to resolve conflict. There could be peace in the Middle East if we just send over Colin Quinn's skinny Irish leg. Unfortunately, being on a commercial channel led to a lot of censorship and interference from the network about what subjects they could and couldn't talk about. We wouldn't want to tick off the advertisers and lose that revenue, but I think it captured comedians in their purest form and was a very underrated series. There were over 200 episodes, and many can be found posted on YouTube. That's Tough Crowd with Colin Quinn. That's all for this edition of Matt Watch That. Thanks for listening to me babble. You can follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Matt You can subscribe to my YouTube page where I'll post videos and clips from the show. If you have any opinions on what I've reviewed or suggestions as to what movie or TV pilot I should see next, use the hashtag MattWatchThat on social. I do plan on having an interactive element, but I need those listeners. So follow, subscribe, like, and spread the word. Until next time, go away. This would be instated in episode 2, post hoc ergo po- The show ran Monday through Thursday from 2004 to 2005. That's, That's not even close. To the point where now, they're not any better than the -the over-the-airwaves channel people grew up with. My mouth just didn't pay attention to my brain. Though if I had to memorize all those lines, my takes alone would boost the budget up to nine, nine million. I'm not that bad. Although, these outtakes would say differently.